Thanks for listening to another message from Life Christian Church. We hope it challenges and encourages you and helps you to grow in your faith. Don't forget, download our app to stay up to date with what's going on at Life. Share your prayer requests or pray for others. Read the Bible online and much, much more. Simply search for Life Christian Church in your app store. Hey, we're picking up where we started a few weeks ago. Um, uh, I began a series called Being. And this is based on the Apostle Paul's writing to the church in Rome, the book we know as Romans. Uh, And... uh, the truth for each one of us, when, when we come to that place where we give our lives to Jesus, two things take place. Well, more than two things, but uh, two things take place. The, the, the first thing is we become in, included in what's called the family of God. So we get to enjoy fellowship with one another. The other thing that happens is that we become a part of what the Bible calls the body of Christ. Now that, in effect, is the church. It's the New Testament church because the church, according to the New Testament, is not about a building. It's not about a location. It's not about geography. The New Testament church is about a body. It's a group of people. It's about you and I, uh, a body of believers. And so we are called the body of Christ. Now the intent for this series is to help us understand in a greater way what that looks like. If we are called to be the body of Christ, what is our function? How do we, how do we act and behave as the body of Christ? Not only that, but what is our message? The gospel, which means good news, is the message that has been entrusted to us to, to demonstrate to the world around us the good news of Christ. So what does that mean? What does this New Testament look like? Uh, Sorry, this New Testament church, this body of believers, this body of Christ look like. Now, I'm going to start today with what I think is one of the most confronting uh, scriptures in all of the Bible. This is a challenging passage and it begins at Romans 1 uh, at verse 18. And the Apostle Paul writes, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relationships, relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. 
Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They are full of envy and murder and strife, deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless and ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Sobering, sobering passage of Scripture. And when Paul wrote this to the church in Rome, this was a commentary on the culture of his day. But I think it was also prophetic in that it speaks so much to us and to our culture today as well. And friends, you haven't got to look too far to recognize that our world is messed up. And if you and I are going to be the church in a messed up world, it's really, really helpful for us to understand what the underlying problem is and then how to discover what the real solution to the underlying problem is. Now, when Paul writes this letter to the church in Rome, he spends the first two and a half chapters talking about what the problem is. And then he spends the rest of the letter talking about the solution to the problem. Now, last time when we launched this uh, series, our key text was uh, Romans 1 and 17, which says, For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Now, last time we unpacked this verse and we came to understand that when the Bible speaks about the righteousness of God in this context, it's talking about the moral attributes of God, the character of God. What is God like? And it talks about that, that righteousness of God revealed and it's actually revealed in the person of Jesus. So if somebody said, hey, can you show me what God is like? You point them to Jesus. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. Look at the way that he lived his life, the way he loved people. You will see in Jesus' life the righteousness of God revealed. But not only is it revealed in Jesus, as we discovered last time, it is also a righteousness that is received. That the moment we come to Christ, when we submit to our lives to Jesus, the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, takes up residence within us. And a huge part of the Holy Spirit's agenda for your life is to restore the righteousness of God to your character. And then for us corporately as a church, the more we surrender to Jesus, the more we comply with what the Holy Spirit is doing, which is a daily transforming us, the more the church will clearly demonstrate the righteousness of God. But then <laughs> the very next verse, verse 18, is to get today's key text which says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So this is really interesting because the previous verse, verse 17, talks about God's righteousness being revealed. And that's kind of in the past tense. It was revealed in the person of Jesus. 
But now today's verse, the very next verse, talks about the wrath of God being revealed. And that's very much in the present context, in the present tense. And so today uh, I want to talk about the wrath of God. And it's, it's a sometimes confusing and not terribly popular topic to talk about because people somehow feel that the wrath of God is just incompatible with everything else we know about God, a God who is loving, forgiving, gracious, merciful, kind, all of those things. How does the wrath of God fit into that picture of a God who is love? Uh, and so it's something we, we, we grapple with a little bit. Some people kind of try to soften it, explain it away as something other than what it is. But, uh, you know, the dictionary definition, uh, the Oxford Dictionary says uh, wrath is extreme anger. Uh, so that doesn't really help us. Maybe Webster's gives us something a bit softer, but Webster's Dictionary says uh, wrath is strong, vengeful anger or indignation. So it's really hard to soften the meaning of wrath. It is what it is. So wrath is either a chink in the character of God's armour, that there's, there's some little flaw in the character of God, or wrath actually is an expression of God's righteousness and God's love. So let's try to begin to understand this today. We're going to look at two things. First of all, we're going to talk about what it is that provokes God's wrath. We're going to look at that today. And then next week, we're going to talk about how God's wrath is expressed in the earth today. So today, we're looking at what provokes God's wrath. Next week, we'll look at how God's wrath uh, is expressed on the earth. So again, Romans 1 and 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Now, there is something critically important that we need to understand right now about this passage. Paul says, get a hold of this, the main issue is not the wickedness of the people. The main issue is the suppression of truth. I'll say that again. The main issue is not the wickedness of the people. The main issue is the suppression of truth. And this is where in recent times and a lot of keyboard warriors get it so wrong because we speak out against wickedness and we make wickedness the issue. Wickedness is not the issue. The suppression of truth is the issue. And here is where we've got to be careful as the church because if we make the main thing not the main thing, which is the glorious good news of the gospel, if we make moral crusading against wickedness our our aim in life, we too are guilty of suppressing the truth. Can I hear an amen this morning? The gospel is good news. That's what we are called to represent. If we become moral crusaders and all we're seen doing is soapboxing against all what we perceive to be the evils of the world, we are suppressing the good news of Jesus. Yeah, that deserves a round of applause. That one wasn't even in my notes. Praise God. 
Verse 21, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. You know, the world, the world needs to hear not what we stand against, but what we stand for. And we've got to know what our message is. And it's interesting here, the problem is that they knew God. This is what Paul's saying. They had a revelation of God, and we'll unpack that in a minute. But they did not acknowledge him or give thanks to him, which is the natural response to recognizing and understanding God. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. Verse 28, furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over. And the verse continues. So they had a knowledge of God, but they didn't retain it. Paul says the issue is not ignorance. It's not a lack of evidence. He says it's a deliberate turning away from God. So here's the big question, because Paul says people suppress the truth. He says, although they know God, they don't respond to God. He says they exchange the truth of God for a lie. He says they don't retain the knowledge of God. So the big question is, how is it that God has revealed himself so clearly that Paul says in verse 20 that people are without excuse? Well, there's two ways that he actually mentions. The first one is that God has revealed himself to us in creation. In verse 24, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. This is what is called the natural revelation of God. That if people would just open their eyes, and how easy can we do this in Tasmania? We are so blessed. That people would just open their eyes, look around and believe what creation tells them. It would lead them to God. And people say, well, that's so naive. That's so simplistic. That is just such an uneducated perspective. But actually, friends, it's the opposite. It is the only explanation of our universe. It is the only explanation of our world that even begins to make sense. Because every other explanation for our universe is based on the premise of cosmic coincidence and fluke and accident and chance. And we don't even begin to have the time to even scratch the, the surface of this topic. But you know, there have been so many robust and credible uh, explanations uh, for the existence or arguments for the existence of intelligent design that have nothing to do with faith or the Bible, that come from renowned scientists. There are so many in the scientific world who are honest enough to say, that everything about the complexity of the world and the universe, it reveals intelligent design. There is no other explanation. It reveals order. It reveals balance. It reveals harmony. It reveals purpose. And that implies, friends, that it, was, it exists for a purpose. Not random existence, but intelligent purpose. And friends, actually, that is the most logical, the most simple explanation for the universe that we're a part of. And it's actually the most logical argument for our existence. 
to believe that our universe and our world is some kind of cosmic coincidence uh, is there's a great analogy that flies around. It, it, it's the, 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 the mathematics of random chance that this all just happened by accident is like suggesting that a cyclone goes through a car wrecking yard and once it's passed, all the bits have suddenly come together to form a f- perfectly functioning jumbo jet. And they said that's, that's the probability of all of this being an accident. That's about the level of faith you need to believe that all this is some kind of big fluke. And if there is no intelligent design, then it is an accident. There is no purpose. You know, one of the most profoundly spiritual experiences of my life had nothing to do with a church gathering or a conference or a preacher or worship. One of the most deeply profound experiences of my life, and I will never forget it, was lying on a dry river bend at a sport and recreation camp about four hours west of Mount Isa by four-wheel drive. Uh, And one evening, lying on this dried-up riverbed, looking up at the, the most vastly incredible clear night sky, seeing stars that I'd never seen before. It was just incredible. And lying there, listening to a scientist, an astronomer, talking about the universe. It was so profoundly spiritual. And Paul's argument here is very simple. Wake up, be sensible. There is a reason behind everything you see, and that is not foolishness, it's not stupidity, that's intelligent. Abraham Lincoln wrote this, I never gaze at the stars without feeling that I'm looking into the face of God. I can see how it might be possible for a man to look down upon the earth and be an atheist. But I cannot conceive how he could look up into the sky and say, there is no God. And again, you might say that's really naive. That's so simplistic. That's just kindergarten thinking. It's unsophisticated. It's uneducated. It's unscientific. Friends, the simple truth is this. Creation reveals a creator. And so Paul writes in verse 19, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Now it's important to note, he doesn't say that that leads them to Jesus. It doesn't mean that they've heard the gospel. It just means that uh, there is something deep within their spirit that speaks of God and they are suppressing it. The writer of Ecclesiastes expands on it a bit more in Ecclesiastes 3 and 11. He says, God has set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. This is a part of our DNA. God by His Spirit. There is, a, there is a void in us that can only be filled by God. And if we suppress that truth, if we don't follow where the evidence leads us, we will fill that void with other stuff. And it's so superficial. So implanted deep within our DNA, deep within the human spirit is a revelation of God. The issue is, do I acknowledge that or not? Do I suppress it? Do I follow where that leads? Do I ask the question, well, who is this God? 
Is God a personal God? Is He knowable? Can I connect with Him? And if I can, how can I do that? Because friends, that's where the evidence leads. But if we're indifferent about it, we won't follow the evidence. We'll switch off our brain. We will become intellectually lazy and we won't follow the evidence. But friends, as Paul says, there is a revelation of God in everything that creation points to. And if we follow the evidence, it leads us on a path to knowing God. But Paul says, well, they didn't follow that evidence. And so he says in verse 21, Although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him. So that's not following through with it. And this is what happens as a result. And their thinking became futile. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, and birds and animals and reptiles. So very simply, Paul is saying, if we don't respond to God, if we don't acknowledge our need for Him and our, de- our dependency upon Him, then our thinking becomes very foolish. Our hearts become darkened or hardened. And then we claim, well, we're becoming wise. But in actual fact, we're becoming fools. And our foolishness takes us to the point where he says in verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And that's idolatry. So you don't just remove the knowledge of God, there's an exchange that takes place. Great 20th century writer called G.K. Chesterton says this, when people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing. They believe in anything. And here's the truth. You can go to any city or large town anywhere in the world at any point in their history And you won't necessarily find in those places evidence of industry and commerce. You will not find in all of those places evidence of uh, places of education. You will not find in all of those places the evidence of great wealth and prosperity. But in every single one of those towns and villages and cities all over the world at any point in their history, you will find evidence of worship be it a church, a synagogue, a temple, uh, a a mosque, you will see evidence of worship. Because here's the thing. If we we crush that, that need to reach out beyond ourselves, to recognize God, the need that we have to know that there is something bigger than me at work in all of this, Something else will fill the void if we crush that search for God, that need for God with our sense of sophistication or our political political correctness. It's not that we go to nothing. Something else has to fill that void. And, and, And other things do. We make idols of all kinds of other things. We have a celebrity culture. We, we, we idolise our sporting heroes. We idolise movie stars. We idolise, uh, you know, pop stars. Uh, we have 
uh, we have so many uh, groups that form, particularly through social media, where, where we, we find our group, we find our cohort, and we're attracted to all kinds of different ideological ideas or, or political persuasions or understandings or political groups because every single human being needs something greater than themselves. And we will worship. And friends, here's the thing, as Paul says, the fingerprint, the evidence of God is all around us. But if we suppress that truth about God, if we refuse to give thanks to Him, Paul says it will lead to two things, spiritual failure, which then leads to moral failure. And if that remains unchecked, it becomes, according to verse 29, wicked, greedy and depraved. So Paul's accusation is not that they didn't know anything about God. His accusation is that they failed to acknowledge and follow through with what they knew. So first of all, God has revealed himself in creation. But the second thing Paul mentions is that he's revealed himself in our conscience. And creation is out there. It's kind of objective to us. But conscience is a very subjective thing. It's an internal thing. We fast forward to chapter 2 of Romans and Paul says in verse 14, when the Gentiles, the non-Jewish, non-Jewish people, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they don't have the law. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing now even defending them. So he's saying, hey guys, you've got to look because there are people that have no revelation of God at all. They don't know the first thing about God. They've never been given the law of God. But it seems in their behavior, in their conscience, it's actually written on their hearts. They display this great sense of right and wrong. There's a sense of good. There's a sense of bad. And it's embedded in their heart. It's often referred to as natural law. But as we look at what's been happening in our world, we realize that that sense of justice or fairness or goodness becomes very easily damaged and distorted. But it is a deep-seated thing within us. It is part of our, our God-ordained DNA. It's a huge part of how God has wired us, that inbuilt sense of justice and fairness. So Paul's explanation of what's wrong with this world as the team come back. Here's his, here's his take on it. Our world, the core issue is people have turned a blind eye to the evidence in creation and a deaf ear to conscience. So they're suppressing the truth. And as a result of that, they are under the wrath of God. And according to Paul, this is what provokes the wrath of God. And friends, I don't know who you are today necessarily. I don't know what you're feeling right now in response to this message. But the fact that you're here right now means that there is something that has drawn you here. And maybe deep within you, there is that search for truth and for meaning. 
And today, each one of us, we have the opportunity to either lean into that truth and go where that prompting leads, where the evidence leads, or to walk away and to close our mind and to suppress the truth. God is reaching out to every one of us today and He wants to reveal Himself to you. But you make that decision. You just need to honestly and sincerely respond to Him. For those of us who do know Jesus today, we've got to understand as we are called to be the church, we've got to understand what the real problem is. The real problem is not behaviour. It's not the wickedness that is the real problem. It's what results from that, which is the suppression of truth. So our mandate is to preach the truth in season and out of season, to speak of the love of God and the grace of God and the goodness of God and the mercy of God. So that those who are lost, those who are perhaps searching and they don't even know they're searching, will have that opportunity to respond because our voice is a voice of truth, not a voice of judgment and condemnation. Because we know what the problem is. Father, speak to every one of us this morning. For those of us who do know you, Lord God, I pray that we would be advocates for the truth. And yeah, God, there is times that we've got to speak up and be vocal about certain issues. But Father, let us not be on a self-righteous moral soapbox pronouncing judgment on wickedness. But I pray, Father, where things like religious freedom and freedom of speech, which are greater threats to the suppression of truth, they're the things that we need to engage in. Because the reality is, Father, every single one of us is broken. Every single one of us, Lord God, we... We carry with us the scars of a sinful human nature and it's by Your grace and by Your goodness and by us having that opportunity to hear the good news, the Gospel of Jesus, that we've been welcomed into that family. An act of Your love, Your goodness, Your grace. Father, may we know what the message is and may we represent that well. For others here this morning, Lord God, maybe, maybe today there is that sense of, you know, I, 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 I want to follow where the evidence leads. I'm just resonating right now with so much that's been said that's helped me understand where I stand with God. And maybe I am on that search. Maybe there are things resonating in my heart that I just, I can't ignore anymore. I can't suppress. I need to follow where the evidence leads. And I pray, friend, right now, that you would experience something of the reality of who God is. He loves you so much. He loves you. He has a plan and a purpose for you in the same way that everything about creation and this universe speaks of purpose and design. God would say the same of your life. Created you for a purpose. I pray that you would reach out in faith to Him and say, God, I need to discover that. You've got to know that you have a Saviour in Jesus who went to the cross, as Jeff spoke about in communion, who went to the cross to change your present reality and to change your future hope. 
Somebody once said, we're not human beings having a spiritual experience. We're spiritual beings having a human experience. And that's how God views you. And He wants you to know an eternal purpose, an eternal hope. Because this world increasingly is so uncertain. And we need to have a sure foundation. We find that in the reality of who God is and who it is He's created you to be. So, Father, I just thank you that you're speaking to each and every one of us this morning. And I pray for some, it might be that moment of just reaching out to you. And if that's you this morning, I, I just pray a simple prayer on your behalf. There's no magic in these words. It's just a conscious decision to say, God, this is line in the sand time. And I'm crossing that line and, and I'm trusting you, God. So just agree with these words in your own heart. Jesus, I come to you today. I thank you, Father, that you've spoken to my heart. I need to know your truth. I need to know your purpose because I've been ignoring the evidence. I've been ignoring my conscience. But Lord, I need hope in my life. And I come to realize that hope ultimately rests in the hands of my Creator. Thank you, Jesus, that you went to the cross to pay for the penalty of my sin, my failure, my past, my mistakes. The Bible says the old has gone and the new has come, that I'm a new creation in Jesus. Help me to live now a new creation life as I ask Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Guide me in walking according to your righteousness, to your goodness. And may I discover my God-given purpose as I surrender every area of my life to you in faith. Make this real, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. God bless your church.